Good morning, everybody. So delighted to welcome everybody to the kickoff of our year of Hartman Learning. When Alex taught a version of this in the holy city of Jerusalem, uh, Amy and I went up to him right after the class and said, can you please teach this at Temple Emmanuel? It was just so, uh, I just thought it was so thoughtful. I don't know if this is going to be Alex's frame, but here's what I took away from it um, as a point of departure. Nationalism has as a downside that marginal groups who don't fit the mainstream narrative usually suffer from the nationalist narrative. And the people throughout history that know this the best are Jews, right? You're not, the real people are Germans, you're not really German the Jews suffered. The real people are Italians. You're not really Italian. The Italians suffered. The real people are Spanish. You're not really Spanish. You live in Spain. You're not really Spanish. The Jews suffered. It just is baked into nationalism that if you're not really the real person who the narrative is for, the marginal people, Jews, always suffered. And the question is, how does that work with Zionism? That was the main question that I took that Alex was engaging. Um, and it just stuck with me and wanted him to share this with you. Uh, without further ado, Alex Kay. Thank you so, so much for that kind introduction. I'm glad you uh, remembered the, the talk the last time I gave it. Um, and and, and the, the introduction you gave basically is the framing of, the, of this talk in a nutshell. Um, but before I get to that, I just want to first of all um, say to you all, thank you so much for having me. It's really, really a tremendous pleasure being in this synagogue um, on a Sunday morning and coming in through the front door and seeing millions of children um, deeply engaged in Jewish learning and then millions of slightly older people um, also, also who have come for, for um, dealing with um, not just Torah learning, but Torah learning around topics that are particularly urgent, quite controversial, and actually quite difficult theoretically to get our heads around. Um, and it's a pleasure this morning to come and talk to you and discuss with you and learn with you some of these ideas. Um, and just following on from what Rabbi West said just a moment ago, um, I think that one of the major questions of our time for Jews, but actually for all Americans and actually in some ways for all people on the globe, is a tremendous tension that has always been there, sort of incipient in the background, but today has somehow thrust itself front and center to, um, and to the forefront of public discourse and political debate all over the world, in all kinds of countries, which is the tension between ourselves feeling that we are first and foremost human beings, that as people, we owe a, our debt of loyalty, we owe our responsibilities, not to this kind of person or this kind of person with this kind of passport or this color of skin or this religious background, but fundamentally we're all human beings. And an ideal vision of the world is a universalist vision, is a cosmopolitan vision in which all people see each other globally as part of one massive family and treat each other in that, in that way. That's on the one side of the spectrum, one side of the scale. But on the other side of the scale, we've seen, especially in recent years, 
resurgent a different ideology, which is an ideology of parochialism, which is an ideology of um, my group first, which is an ideology of closing borders, which is an ideology of making sure that the right people are inside and the right people are outside, which is an ideology of self-protection and self-preservation, and that means self-preservation physically, but also for some people it can mean preserving our own culture, whatever that means, our own way of life, whatever that means, above all else. And that second ideology today is increasingly associated with ideas of nationalism, especially extremist nationalisms of different kinds. And there are all over the world, including in our own country, but all over the world as well, um, national leaders who are emphasizing this kind of more parochial, um, us-first vision of the world. Um, and there are many of us who, uh, there are many Americans and many people around the world who are throwing their lot in with that. And then there are many people who are rejecting that, rebutting that, and thinking that that leads to a kind of despicable ends or threatens to lead to despicable ends and has to be resisted at all costs with a more universalist ideology. Now, that's, this is true of all people, I think, or many people in the world today. And for Jews, this has an extra complication, which is, um, the Jews, we're certainly not the only people, but we are among the people who have had um, a history of marginalization, oppression, persecution, expulsion, um, and in the middle of the 20th century, genocide. Okay. So for Jews, there's an extra complication here, which is how do, should we fall out in this great ideological battle, this tremendous tension between universalism on the one hand and a kind of parochial national self-preservation ideology. On the other hand, where should we come out on that? On the one hand, some Jews say, we should most of all be caring about protecting ourselves because God knows nobody else is looking out for us and we have to do it for ourselves. We've, we've historically been weak and marginal and even if that's not always the case for all Jews today, it could yet be the case again. And therefore, we owe it to ourselves to protect ourselves. And whether that means a political action in the United States or wherever we happen to live, or whether it means certain ideologies regarding Zionism and the state of Israel and how to act in that place as well, that certain, it's, it's, it's worth paying the price of certain um, moral compromises in order to ensure that we have a basic level of security. And there are other Jews who think, if there's anything that Jewish history has taught us, it is that a parochial self-regard, a focus exclusively on self-preservation, is the worst ideology there is and leads to all kinds of terrible ends. And therefore, as Jews, we should be more universal and open and outward-looking and embracing of other people and not be too, caring too, too much about our own community. So this is a general problem, and for Jews, it's a specific problem, this tension between um, universalism on the one hand and a kind of parochial nationalism on the other hand. So where should we fall out on this spectrum? Now, I've got bad news for you, which is I, I'm not going to tell you in the next 25 minutes the answer to that question. Um, what we're going to see, I'm going to speak for another uh, probably 50 minutes or so, and during that 50 minutes what I'm going to um, do is the following thing. I'm going to, first of all, give you a historical overview of where this question, where this tension, this problem has come from. And it's really, really important to realize that the tension that we feel today in daily life is not something that started 
um, for three years ago, two years ago. It's something that's been going on for the past couple of hundred years that Jews in particular have been grappling with and thinking about these questions for the past couple of hundred years. The good thing about that is we have a couple of hundred years of wisdom, of resources, of different positions that have been laid out by different thinkers and, uh, that we can draw on and, and use for ourselves. Um, that's the first thing I'm going to do. The second thing I'm going to do is to try to make to you the argument that actually there is no straightforward answer to this question, that to my mind, What's important is to recognize the underlying fears, aspirations, and traumas, hopes that underlie each of these extremes on, this, on the spectrum that we're talking about, to recognize them, to recognize them in ourselves, to recognize them in other people, to affirm them where necessary, but then while, once we've raised them to a higher level of consciousness, to make sure that they don't drag us to um, extremes that cause moral compromises that we are unwilling to accept. Um, or to put it slightly differently, there is a middle path here, but the middle path isn't just, look, there's A and B, and there's C in the middle, and I always know what the right thing to do is because I'm just a moderate, so I'm always in the middle. But actually, this middle path is the most complicated one. It's the most arduous one. It's the most difficult one because rather than being an extreme ideological position, it requires constant reassessment, constant vigilance, constant weighing up of different alternatives. Um, there's no one answer to every question. It it, it's an agonistic process of continually self-understanding what, um, what the right thing to do is. So it's the harder position, but to my mind also um, the only um, reasonable position giving, given the downsides of the two extreme alternatives. So that's the, that's the overview. Let's just turn to the first sheet here, which um, is not text at all, but a picture, two maps. Now, the reason I've given you uh, these two maps is to demonstrate a historical um, piece of historical background, which I think is crucial to bear in mind as we look at the sources um, that we're about to look at. And the historical piece of information is this. When we are thinking about how to, as human beings or as Jews, ideally <laughs> for Jewish people, there should be both Jews and human beings, so as both Jews and human beings, how to think about these questions that nationalism throws up for us. When we're trying to think through these questions, we have to bear in mind the historical fact that nationalism as an ideology, as an existence in the world, is actually very, very new as a historical phenomenon. And therefore, it's actually, in some ways, not surprising that we are still trying to figure out the question of how to square the circle between a nationalist community and a universal human community. Nationalism is very, very new. And let me show you what I mean by that. The map on the right um, is a map of, of basically Europe and North Africa and parts of the Middle East um, in the year 2000, maybe a slightly earlier than, around 2000, a little earlier than 2000, I think. Um, yeah. Um, and that's a map of that region as we know it today. The map on the left is a map from 1800, just 200 years ago. Um, and as you'll see, almost every country that is currently in the area on this map, North Africa, the Middle East, Russia, Western, Eastern, and Central Europe, almost every country there in the year 2000 
had appeared between the year 1800 and the year 2000. So there are a couple of exceptions. France was there already, England was there already, but Italy was not a country, a unified country until 1871. Germany was not a unified country until 1871. All of Eastern Europe um, was carved up out of parts of the Habsburg Empire, the Prussian Empire, um, and the, um, the former Soviet Union, which was essentially a, the heir to the Russian Empire. North Africa, all of the countries that we know today, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Israel, of course, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, all of these places, you know, some of them have very, very old histories and existed in some version or another. But as modern nation states, these are new countries. And this is a striking thing because um, we think of the nation, the idea of the nation as being something that's been around forever. But it's actually a very, very new phenomenon. And because it's a new phenomenon, when it sort of burst onto the scene at the end of the 18th century, Jews, wherever they lived, had to think to themselves, had to figure out how they should contend with this new phenomenon of these new nationalist identities. What should their position to them, to them be? And what we're going to do now is to look at some of the positions that Jews have had both historically and also today um, and map them out in a kind of schema of different possible responses that Jews have had to this question of nationalism. And the question basically is, as Jews, what should our position be? Should we be cheerleaders for nationalism? Should we say that nationalism is great, borders are amazing, the idea of citizenship and sovereignty is fantastic, it's going to be good for other people and it's going to be good for us, and therefore we should strive as much as possible to be part of Britain or France or the United States or wherever we happen to live and show that we're good citizens and we're going to be really part of the countries where we reside? Or should we say, hmm, this idea of marking out different territories and closing borders is not necessarily going to be good for Jews, it's not necessarily going to be good for others, and there should be other, some other kind of more universal solution. And Jews have had positions all over the ideological map on this. And as we go through these positions, I think you'll find that the things that we see that, that, that are in this course packet, even if they've been written 100 years ago, 200 years ago, in some ways will often still resonate with us today. And crucially, as we go through, we're going to read some things here which I think you will read and say, yeah, that, that seems right to me. I'm really glad I saw that because it really puts into words what I'm feeling. And you will see other things which I imagine, at least one thing that we'll see, you will look at and find that you totally, totally disagree with it. Perhaps even find it repulsive, objective, objectionable as an ideology. When that happens, See what, see what you can do about acknowledging the emotional response, to be sure, but see what you can do about analyzing what kind of fear or what kind of aspiration lies behind the position that you find objectionable. And I say that not because I think that everything in this source packet is wonderful. I absolutely don't. But because unless we recognize the places that people are coming from, it's going to be very, very hard figuring out how to um, act as a community and as individuals, for that matter, too. Okay. So let's start in a more general vein. I brought here, I, we're not going to read every word of this, but I, I brought it for you because I thought that you might uh, like to sort of follow up with it afterwards as, a, um, as kind of reading after the fact. And I should also say, by the way, if anyone's interested in books or articles or resources on 
anything we're talking about today, um, feel free to contact me, and I'll be very happy to send you loads of stuff until uh, you're completely sick of me. <laughs> but don't hesitate to be in touch if, if, if you want to. Um, I want to point out, um, I, I brought a couple of excerpts from um, Michael Ignatieff here, um, who is a, uh, an intellectual historian um, from Canada, who wrote this book called Blood and Belonging about the Balkan states, about nationalism in the Balkan states. And why I think that's a really interesting book uh, for us as a, as a framing is that in this book, he acknowledges really the two sides of this tension. The Balkans obviously is a place and has been a place with tremendous inter-ethnic and international and international um, violent, violent conflict, okay, of a, of a very, very serious kind. And what he tries to do in this book is to understand what is it that causes people to kill and be killed and just to disrupt an entire region of the globe for this nationalist ideology. Um, and his position, if we'll jump um, actually to source three uh, here, um, which I'll kind of read excerpts of. So he says, um, when nationalists claim that national belonging is the overridingly important form of all belonging, they mean that there is no other form of belonging to your family, work, or friends that is secure if you do not have a nation to protect you. This is what warrants sacrifice on the nation's behalf. In other words, when people go out to fight to protect their borders, to protect their nation, what they're saying is this is the place that we need to be secure as the basis for all other, sorry, I keep doing that, for all other, all other kinds of security in our life. If we want to have a secure family life, if we want to be able to go to work and earn a living in a peaceful way, we need the state to be on a secure founding. Otherwise, everything else falls away. And if we'll just turn the page, just to flesh that out a little bit, the top of page two, belonging also means being recognized and being understood. When I am among my own people, they understand me as I understand them. And this understanding creates within me a sense of being somebody in the world. And the end of that paragraph, the nationalist claim is that full belonging the warm sensation that people understand not merely what you say but what you mean can only come when you are among your own people in your native land. Now, I've spoken to many Jews, and, and this is certainly not a universal Jewish feeling, but it, some Jews feel this way for sure, that wherever they happen to live in the world, when they go to Israel to visit, they feel in some part of themselves more at home there than they do where they've lived their whole lives and where they grew up and where their parents live, in some part of themselves. In some part of themselves, they may feel they don't understand the language. This is a very foreign place. There's all kinds of things they don't like. But in some part of themselves, seeing so many Jews around and feeling that this is, this is a place where being Jewish is, does not mark you out as different um, or as marginal in any way creates a certain kind of comfort and a feeling of psychological security for them. And many Jews feel, do not feel that way. But many, many do. Many do. Um, just anecdotally, I, I was kind of hesitant to share this, but I, but I, but I will, I will. Um, I, I grew up in England. I, that will probably come as a surprise to you. Um, I, this, this, um, this accent, uh, I came by it honestly. Um, and I, my, my wife is American, and we moved to the States um, about a year after we got married. Um, and I had a green card. And I, at some point, I became an American citizen. And... Um, 
it wasn't a straightforward choice, honestly, to become an American citizen. Um, not because I didn't like America particularly, but I was, particular, I was perfectly happy with a British passport. I didn't feel the need to kind of, um, you know, throw my lot in with like a second country and so on. It was a kind of, um, I, was, I was ambivalent about the process, I'll, I'll have to admit. Um, and I remember going ambivalently through, through this process. Um, and I don't know if any of you here have become an American citizen, if any of you have had that experience. Uh, you don't have to identify yourself, but thanks, hi. Uh, um, so you'll, you'll, you'll know that the, it's quite a, an arduous process, it's quite an expensive process, and um, it involves all kinds of paperwork and medical tests, and also um, there's an exam they give you. You have to learn all kinds of stuff about America, and you have this oral test. And, and I remember uh, sitting, waiting for this oral test, and you know, with all my, with all my ambivalence, you know, I wasn't against the process, but I thought, like, do I really need to do this? And, uh, um, and in the same waiting room, waiting to go into this exam, there were two people who um, uh, I didn't ask them, but I, 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 they, um, from the languages that they were speaking, um, they weren't from England. Okay, so they were from. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't honestly remember which, which countries they were from, but my memory is I th one of them was speaking Russian and, and one of them was speaking Mandarin, um, if, if my memory serves. And they were going through the book with each other, kind of testing each other on the questions in sort of broken English. Um, and that gave me a couple of feelings. First of all, um, you, you know, the, uh, the tremendous privilege that I was operating in, basically, that I'd come from this country which was secure and which was, I was happy about, and um, I was somebody that was, rightly or wrongly, you know, desirable for, you know, you know, I'm, I was educated and, and I could be, you know, I could work and support myself and had family here and those kinds of things. And I speak English already, and I, I learned for this exam by, you know, I read the book and, you know, it wasn't so, so difficult. And, but just being struck by the fact that there, there are people all over the world that would probably literally give their right arm um, to be a citizen of this country. And I, and I then had tremendous ambivalence about my ambivalence. Um, uh, welcome to the uh, neurotic world of Alex K, by the way. <laughs> uh, saying that out loud is actually a bit embarrassing. But anyway, um, and, and there is a sense that, that basically, um, and Michael Ignatieff says it here, which I'll read to you in a second, but it, it, um, it, it, it is people who already have a tremendous amount of security, a kind of peaceful um, framework for their lives that can then say, yeah, but why should there be borders? Why should there be nations? Why should there be governments? Why can't we all just love each other and be a big part of one universal community? And those sentiments are heard less often from places where all people want is some kind of um, basic and um, safe place where they can just live out peaceful, normal lives. So if you look on, on, on the penultimate paragraph on page two, this is Michael Ignatieff again. It is only too apparent, he says, that cosmopolitanism is the privilege of those who can take a secure nation state for granted. Those who, Though we have passed into a post-imperial age, we have not moved into a post-nationalist age, and I cannot see how we will ever do so. The cosmopolitan order of the great cities, London, Los Angeles, New York, Paris, Boston. It's a typo. He, I, don't know how he, I don't know how he missed Boston. Um, depends critically on the rule-enforcing capacities of the nation state. 
And when this order breaks down, as it did during the LA riots of 1992, and by the way, we can give many other examples. He wrote this book uh, in, the, in the 90s. It becomes apparent, apparent that civilized, cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic states have as great a propensity for ethnic warfare as any Eastern European country. Okay, so this is all to say that there is something, um, there is something like just honest and true about a human desire for um, some kind of belonging to uh, a, a nation state with safe borders, with a rule of law, um, with a certain amount of economic security. Um, that's a reasonable human desire. Um, on the other hand, and let's just turn back um, one page to, to George Orwell here. So this is George Orwell, who was a sort of a vigilant uh, critic of the tendency towards dictatorship and towards fascism and towards extremist nationalism, nationalism gone wrong, I could say, where he says um, he, he objects to nationalism, but he kind of has, a, has his cake and eats it too. He says, by nationalism, I mean the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit, placing it beyond good and evil, and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. So that, he thinks, is bad if you say that the only significant thing in your life is nationalism, and that trumps everything else, every other moral code, every other relationship. But, he says, that's not to be confused with patriotism. By patriotism, I mean devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life, which one believes to be the best in the world but has no wish to force on other people. Patriotism is of its nature defensive, both militarily and culturally, Nationalism, on the other hand, is inseparable from the desire for power. So the question is, is there a way of figuring out how to have a healthy desire for a strong community and a safe place to live while remaining vigilant that it doesn't slide into extremism, um, white supremacy, or other kinds of um, terrible ideologies, fascism, and so on? So let's look at how Jews have responded to that question. First of all, um, we'll look at the question of liberalism. This is, a, this is an ideological approach that many Jews have had, and I think, by the way, many Jews in the United States have uh, today, um, which is as follows. Here's, here is the basic position. Nation states are great things because under the rule of law, every citizen is treated equally. And it used to be in the Middle Ages, that Jews were marked out as different from other people. But today, in the modern state, Jews are citizens just as much as anyone else, and thereby they are safer because they are treated equally under the law and cannot be, we can vote, we can run for office, um, we can have jobs, we can live anywhere we want, just as much as anywhere else. That's the liberal promise. And isn't that a wonderful thing about the modern state? So what our job as Jews should be is to do as much as we possibly can to strengthen the idea of the state and to demonstrate that we are absolutely loyal citizens of the state in which we live. Now, the first source that I have illustrating this, this position is a source that I've chosen particularly, like purposefully, in, in, in and that it is very, very controversial, seen through certain prisms 100 years on, because this position of Lucien Wolf, who is a British, who was a British Jewish leader um, about 100 and 120 years ago. He was a journalist, he was a diplomat, 
very significant Jewish leader, and I want to emphasize that he was not a self-hating Jew, whatever that might mean. He was someone who cared deeply, deeply, deeply about the Jewish community and about Jews in general. And his position was that it's necessary to show loyalty to the British state, and therefore the ideology that he absolutely opposes at all costs and rejects as imbecilic, stupid, self-defeating, the worst thing for the Jews is Zionism. Because Zionism says the Jews should not feel loyal to Britain or France or the United States or wherever it is, he is saying. Zionism says that Jews should not feel loyal to those countries. They should recognize themselves not as members of the nation of Britain or wherever, but as members of a Jewish nation who should rightly be in Palestine, as, as it was called when he was writing. Now, I'm not saying that this position is still holds or even necessarily held at the time, but I want you to see it to understand the power of his, his position here. So let's have a look on page three, source number four. The paper that he wrote is called The Zionist Peril, which if you saw today, you'd think was something from an anti-Semitic website. He says, a legal emancipation has been won in every civilized country in the world. And skipping to the bold, our victories were due not to any special tolerance or sympathy for the Jewish people, but to a revolution in the conception of nationality, which is fundamental to the modern constitution of society. The great beauty of modern citizenship, he says, is that as Jews, we don't have to say, listen, I'm a Jew, and I've been persecuted, and I'm marginal, so please give me special protections in case other people hurt me. No, there's no defensiveness. There's no kind of meek asking for handouts. You're a citizen, so stand up on your two feet. You're a citizen like every other citizen. And that's a privilege and it's a right as well. Just skipping to the next paragraph. The characteristic peril of Zionism is that it is the natural and abiding ally of anti-Semitism and its most powerful justification. It is an attempt to turn back the course of modern Jewish history, which hitherto, on its political side, has had for its main object to secure for Jewish people an equal place with their fellow citizens of other creeds in the countries in which they dwell, and a common lot with them in the mainstream of human progress. It is an, Zionism is essentially an ignorant and narrow-minded view of a great problem. Ignorant because it takes no account of the decisive element of progress in history, and narrow-minded because it confounds a political memory with a religious ideal, says Lucian Wolf. The great promise for Jews today, Jews who care about their Judaism, their traditions, their cultures, their communities, and their physical safety should absolutely shed any claim to being a, um, to, to any claim of Judaism being a national identity. Judaism can be a religious identity, a communal identity, an ethnic identity if you want. But should any idea that Jewish, Judaism is a national identity and throw your lot completely in with the state that you happen to live in, be a strong citizen there, and that is your main claim to physical security. And Zionism is undermining that by saying Jews don't really belong where they are. They should be, or they really belong somewhere else, and their loyalty should be elsewhere. That's Lucien Wolf's position. I want to just point out um, one more piece, um, which differs slightly but has something in common. Um, which is the position of Hermann Cohen, which is source three. So Hermann Cohen um, was arguably the greatest philosopher of his 
period. So he was writing at the end of the 19th century. He was one of the um, great leaders of what was called the Neo-Kantian school of, of philosophy um, in, in Germany at the end of the 19th century. Yeah? And, and he, was, he, was, he wrote uh, Jewish philosophy, philosophy and theology on Jewish topics, but he also wrote general philosophy and was recognized by not just Jews, but by everyone as being one of the giants of philosophy. Um, and, and here is his critique of Zionism. So, um, it, so and this is, a, this is a letter that he wrote, a, an article that he wrote in response to Martin Buber, another philosopher-theologian who, who was a Zionist. Okay. So this is Herman Cohen writing in 1916, the bottom of page three. While the Zionist believes that Judaism can be, can be preserved only by an all-encompassing Jewish nationalism, we are of the opposite view, believing that only a universal, mankind-oriented Judaism can preserve the Jewish religion. And he goes on, in 1916, okay, so right in 1916, Hitler um, was, I don't know if he was still fighting on the front or if he'd already um, been, been injured. Um, about uh, 10 years later, he would start his uh, political activity in Germany, and here's Hermann Cohen writing, we love Germany and all that it stands for because of our awareness of that innermost accord existing between the German spirit and our messianic religiosity. The German spirit is the spirit of classical humanism and true universalism. Therefore, it is only natural that we German Jews should feel at one with ourselves as Jews and as Germans. Now, I want to be very clear here. I am certainly not trying to accuse Herman Cohen of, of anything. Um, hindsight is uh, obviously unavailable to people before the fact. That's why they call it hindsight. And at the time, Herman Cohen, a brilliant thinker, uh, a deep Jewish thinker, had every reason to believe the kinds of things that he was writing. He saw um, German philosophy, he saw its universalism, its humanism, he saw German culture, he saw the fact that um, Jews over the preceding decades had made great strides in Jewish culture, in Jewish society, in, in, excuse me, in German society, and were moving um, um, by this stage to sort of universal Jewish citizenship uh, in Germany, and this was his position. Um, and I wonder if it sounds familiar to any of us. So he's saying, uh, look, it's no wonder that Jews love German, uh, love Germany, because Germany is about universalism and humanism and culture, and that's why Jews are so at home here. And I imagine that people in this room, either you yourself or people who you know, you've heard expressed a similar position regarding Jews in America. So Jews, of course Jews love America. America is different from any other place that Jews have lived, because America is all about welcoming people and inclusion and universalism and stuff like that. We don't necessarily look at um, the history of um, the enslavement and oppression and continued um, oppression and persecution of African-American people in this country. We don't necessarily turn our eyes um, as easily to the borders of the country now where you know young people are in shackles because they're trying to run away from violence in their home and hope for the United States to be a safe haven. But what, what we look at is, um, what, what, we are, what we are naturally, humanly drawn to look at is things in our personal experience. Some of us have had parents or grandparents or great-great-grandparents who fled persecution and found in America a place that was safe, that was a land of opportunity, that accepted them, that didn't persecute them on the basis of religion. Or if it did, those stories were kind of forgotten because other narratives kind of pushed, pushed through to the top. 
Um, and we see America as some, something which is in, has something in sync with, Jewish, with the Jewish tradition. Um, and again, I'm not, um, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to feel at home in a place and to feel that the different parts of your identity are harmonized or are in sync with each other. That's a wonderful thing, and it's a natural thing as well. Um, but I'm also pointing out that there are other perspectives here, that um, there are other narratives that other people may have and other people may feel, even if, if you don't. And there's going to be a whole lot of time for questions at the end, I promise you. Um, I just want to somewhat pace myself with, uh, with the, the different positions I'm, I'm marking out here. So, so that's one position. Um, it's a position which I hope I've mapped out in such a way as to be, um, as for you to be sympathetic to it. Maybe you in any case had that position yourself, but, but you can see where people are coming from. You can see the fears that they have that lead them to these kinds of, um, these kinds of positions. That's liberalism. Now, we're now going to talk about a whole different approach, which is cosmopolitanism. So cosmopolitanism says that, I mean, you can see it in the words. So um, polis is, is a city, right? The, a, a Greek city or a state, a city-state. And the cosmos is the cosmos. So cosmopolitanism says that your city, your small city, is the same as the whole world. Everybody is just, uh, we're all brothers and sisters together. I don't care if you're Jewish or not. I don't care if you're American or Chinese or Ecuadorian. We're all human beings. And the... Um, borders that we set up, the identities that we set up that distinguish ourselves from each other, the social constructs of race and ethnicity and nation and religion, these are all nonsense. And they get in the way of the fundamental truth that we are all one. And if we recognize that, it would somehow be an end to violence, it would be an end to tension, it would be an end to conflict, it would be an end to competition. And there are endless versions of this cosmopolitan ideal. Communism has got one version of it. Um, there, are very, there, are, there are endless versions of this cosmopolitan idea. Let me give you a, a couple here. So this is the, the source number six is from Emma Goldman, um, who was an anarchist, a Jewish. Um, she was an American. She was an immigrant to America from Eastern Europe um, at the end of the 19th century. She was a very, very committed anarchist. Um, she, um, she endorsed uh, at certain points in her life physical violence. Um, in the goal of bringing down oppressive governments. She was a tremendous speaker and supporter of um, organized labor um, and, um, and uh, basically you know, helping out the little person from being trodden on by, um, by the state and by other kinds of um, potentially oppressive uh, infrastructure um, institutions. And this is what she said. Um, Anarchism stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion and liberation of the human body from the coercion of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. It stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals. No more oppressive institutions. No more synagogues. No more governments. No more universities telling people what to think unless you, you choose to go there and you choose to pursue that particular kind of education. Be free. Make connections with people on the basis of social bonds that you have with people, not on the basis of um, the corrupt and coercive institutions that run the world. Governments, corporations, and so on. This is Emma Goldman's very, very, very strong position. She sounds very um, severe. She was actually also a tremendous fun. Uh, there's a story told about Emma Goldman 
And when she was, she was fairly young, and she was, she'd come to the United States, and she was getting in with all of the kind of communist anarchist crowds uh, that she was part of. And a lot of the people in these groups were very um, severe, intense, uh, intellectual young people, often young men. And she was a bit more fun. And a, a man um, um, told her once, she, she wanted, there was some get together and I think she wanted to have some fun or some dancing or something like that. And a, and a young man told her that there's no time for that because we need to focus on the revolution. Enough with your dancing. Uh, and she said, um, if I can't dance at your revolution, then I don't want there to be a revolution. And she wanted a revolution, but she also wanted to be able to dance at it, which I, I think is, uh, is a very nice outlook, even though I don't endorse all of what she said. But dancing, I, I, can, I can definitely get behind. But it's not just anarchists, and it's not just communists that feel that way. So look at source number seven. This is George Steiner, an American intellectual. Many of you, have, uh, I'm sure, have heard of him, have read his work, and very, very prominent uh, American intellectual. Uh, he wrote this uh, important piece from our perspective, important piece in 1985, called Our Homeland, the Text. And this is an argument basically against nationalism and against borders and against the idea of sovereignty. And for him, the great value of Judaism is precisely the very fact that Judaism is not focused on a state. Again, very much in contrast to Zionism. The whole goal of Zionism is to have a state with borders and an army and a government and a place of security. For him, the value of Judaism is that for a couple of thousand years, there was no Jewish state. So Jews learned how to be Jews without having to focus on this idea of national boundaries. Here's what he writes. Um, I'm just reading the bold in the text here. The nation state, he says, is founded on myths of insaturation. Of, that's obviously a typo. Um, I can't remember what it should have been. Um, in any case, myths of militant glory. Myths of militant glory. That's what's running the nation state. And look at the next paragraph in the bold. The man or woman at home in the text is by definition a conscientious objector. What does he mean about being at home in the text? Rather than being at home in the United States, at home in France, where is, for him, the home of the Jewish person in the text. When we study, we are at home. When we read text, when we learn Torah together, that is the equivalent of setting up a government. But we don't need a government because what we are doing is we, are, we find ho our home in our cultural, intellectual, religious lives. He continues, to the vulgar mystique of the flag and the anthem, to my country, right or wrong, to the pathos and the eloquence of collective mendacities on which the nation state, be it a mass consumer mercantile technocracy or a totalitarian oligarchy, builds its power and aggressions. Studying Torah, reading texts, having intellectual conversations, having these um, beautiful meetings of minds, this is a kind of rebuttal. This is an answer to, this is a rejection of militancy, um, overreach of capitalism, um, the, uh, the extreme positions that come from a focus on guarding the nation state and its borders at all costs. We have to be at home in the text. This is Jewish cosmopolitanism. Now, I want to look at um, three more positions. Mm -mm -mm. One of them briefly, and, and then two more. So one of them briefly is, uh, we're going to do this quite quickly. 
which is, an, which is what I've called here diaspora nationalism. That's not my phrase. That's, that's what uh, it's called in the scholarship and, and, uh, and by its leading proponents. Diaspora nationalism sounds like an oxymoron, but actually it is an attempt to square the circle. It's an attempt to say, we think that Jews do not all need to be in one place in Israel, let's say, or in any particular location, but that nonetheless Jews are a nation and should understand themselves as a nation and look for rights and recognition as a nation even as they are living among other national groups wherever they may be. It's an attempt to, 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 to have both things at the same time, to say we're okay living where we are and being loyal to that place, but also we feel a tremendous loyalty to the nation of the Jews, including Zionism and, and, and the state of Israel if need be. So let me give you one um, example of, a, of, of, of an articulation of that. I'm going to... Who should we go with? Let's go with Louis Brandeis because I teach at Brandeis. Um, so, so that seems like a good, good place to go. So Louis Brandeis, a great Jewish Supreme Court Justice of the United States, um, tries to articulate this position in 1915. So Brandeis was a Zionist, but he was also happy to be an American Jew. So how, does he, how did he understand those two things? Um, and this article in particular, by the way, comes, um, the context of this, the wider context of this article, is him dealing with the claim um, that Jews have a dual loyalty, okay, which was a, a particularly sort of virulent um, um, piece of, uh, a virulent claim against Jews that was tinged with all kinds of sort of anti-Semitic history that Jews, you can't really trust them, they're kind of a fifth column, they're only out for themselves, but they look like they could just wheedle themselves into our country and then um, rule the world from behind the scenes. That, so that, that, that's, a, that's the kind of basic history of this claim of dual loyalty that Brian Nice is arguing against. And he says, let no American imagine that Zionism is inconsistent with patriotism. That Zionism is inconsistent with American patriotism, he means. Multiple loyalties are objectionable only if they are inconsistent. A man, and I will add, or, or any person, a person is a better citizen of the United States for being also a loyal citizen of his state, of his city, for being loyal to his family, to his profession or trade. Every Irish American who contributed towards advancing home rule was a better man and a better American for the sacrifice that he made. Every American Jew who aids in advancing the Jewish settlement in Palestine, though he feels that neither he nor his descendants will ever live there, will likewise be a better Jew and a better American for doing so. In other words, um, not only is Zionism and American patriotism um, not inconsistent, they actually support each other. There is something um, about Americanness that, that is enhanced by people bringing their own identities, their own national cultures to this country. And in fact, just to continue the, the uh, anecdote from before, when I eventually was sworn in as an American citizen, the federal, federal judge who um, presided at that, um, at that ceremony gave a speech to all of the people in the room who were from all over the world, all kinds of different national dress and different languages being spoken. And this federal judge said, you're now American, but don't think that because you're an American, you should shed anything of your past history, culture, um, 
feeling of belonging to whatever group that you belong to, bring that to America. America wants you to bring that identity here, and it will enhance and enrich in the lives of uh, all the Americans around you. And that's a strong position in, in American terms. Okay. Now, I'm going to pause here and talk um, about just just to take a look at where we've where we've come. Um, We've looked at different positions so far before we um, jump into talking about Zionism, with which we'll end our categorization of different positions here. Um, we've seen um, liberalism um, and a, a strong sense of nationalism. You have to be loyal to the place where you are and give up other kinds of loyalty. And we've also seen um, this sense of cosmopolitanism, all people, just uh, brothers and sisters together, and national loyalties actually just undermine um, that basic sense of connection between all people. Um, what's really important to recognize is that many cosmopolitan ideolo ideologists, Jews and others, who begin on that kind of ideology, historically have quickly come to see that an immediate hope of a universal brotherhood and sisterhood of all human beings is a little bit um, unrealistic, to say the least. Um, so let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, in the late 19th century, there was, uh, I'm sure as many of you know, a very, very, very large, very important socialist workers' organization um, in Russia, which was called the Bund, okay, which was a Jewish labor organization. It was one of the largest, if not the largest, labor organization in the Russian Empire at the time. Um, and it started off with a very, very strong position of being non-Zionist. And the reason for this was that the Bund leadership felt that the real problem in the world is, is a problem of um, class war, class oppression. And the way to deal with that is to unite with all other working people, fight for workers' rights, bring about a socialist revolution, and that would solve all the other problems, including anti-Semitism. And they tried for a long time to unite with other workers' organizations, which were not Jewish. And they found that they were rejected. They found that there was tremendous anti-Semitism among other workers' movements. And in the end, the Bund, and I'm, I'm simplifying a very, very complex picture, obviously, which took place over a couple of decades. But this is a, this is a reasonable overview of it, that in the end, the Bund actually embraced the idea of Jewish nationalism embrace the idea that Jews are in fact a nation and that the Bund can address Jewish specific issues as well as the larger, more important, not necessarily more important, but the larger, also important picture of socialist revolution. Let me give you one other example which I think will resonate uh, with some today as well. Um, as you know, and um, some of you I'm sure will remember and perhaps participated um, in, in the beginnings of what's called second wave feminism um, in the United States. So um, this is, um, uh, if, if first wave feminism was a, a fight for women to get the vote, second wave feminism was the beginning um, of people arguing that women shouldn't just be allowed to vote like anyone else, but they should be treated on an equal footing with men in society. They should be able to have the same jobs as men. They should be treated um, with equal respect as men. They should have their own choices as men. They shouldn't have to you know, rely on their husbands for their bank accounts and for getting and buying a house and, and so on. They shouldn't have to work as housewives in the home and doing unpaid labor and so on. And many of the leaders of this second wave feminism were Jewish women. 
So I'm thinking about Betsy Friedan and Bella Abzug and Betsy Pogrebin, Gloria Steinem um, had uh, Jewish ancestry as well, um, and others. Um, in 1975, there was a, uh, the first uh, um, international women's uh, conference, which took place in Mexico. And there was an American delegation, and uh, many of these Jewish women that I, that I just described went along and found that the International Women's Conference was essentially hijacked by often male speakers, ironically, um, who were spouting all kinds of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, that somehow it had been, at least in part, hijacked, and instead of fighting the patriarchy, people were fighting Zionism. And this created a moment of actually disillusionment among many of these Jewish feminists who had looked to a universal sisterhood of women to unite with women all over the place and found that anti-Semitism had found its way into the women's movement in a serious way. So let me briefly read you this piece from Letty Cotton Pogrebin, who, who um, so she wrote a piece in 1982 at the time. This is her talking about the piece that she wrote, and I've put the URL of, of where you can find this. I strongly recommend you to go here, first of all, because it's quite important to read the, all of it, but also this is housed at the Jewish Women's Archive. Do you know about that, the Jewish Women's Archive? Okay, so immediately after this lecture, just go and look up the Jewish Women's Archive. It's one of the great um, online resources that is on the web, um, and you'll, as soon as you go there, you'll see why I'm saying that. So here's what, here's what Letty said, Letty um, Pogrebin said. As much as I might wish for a world of universalist values and de-emphasized differences, I would no longer tolerate a woman's movement in which Jews are the only group asked to relinquish their own interests while other women were allowed to push their private agendas and subvert feminist ideals when it suited them. She goes on, I still have universalist dreams, visions of one world without the rancors of nationalism, tribalism, and patriarchy, but now I dream them only when fully awake. Andrea Dworkin, also a Jewish feminist, um, in Source 11, puts this very pithily. She wrote, in the world I'm looking for, nation states will not exist. But in the world I live in, I want there to be an Israel. In the world I'm looking for, there'll be no nation states. But in the world I'm living in now, she wants an Israel for her own security and the security of Jews. In other words, these are people who are struggling deeply with their fundamental aspiration for a, a free universalism, for a, a world in which there are no differences between people of any kind in which oppression of all kinds is got rid of and in which nation states are not necessary, but also a recognition that in reality, the place that we're living in now, um, we are not yet there. And that therefore, we can't just say, um, we can't be unrealistic about these things. And for these two people, um, Zionism was therefore, at least for now, an important idea. Okay. So in my last 12 minutes, let me tell you a couple of positions that Zionists have taken on this. And I'm going to map out two um, very extreme positions, um, each of which I think have problems which will probably be readily um, understandable. Um, but sometimes it's good to look at extremes to kind of map out the, the different ideologies well. So the, the question that these Zionist thinkers that I'm bringing to you are considering is, uh, what should be the role of violence, of, of military force, in the Zionist movement? That's the question. 
Um, should Jews say, we've been hurt all these years by other people attacking us, and therefore we refuse to do that, and we're going to be different? Or should Jews say, don't be silly, we can't be naive, we have to defend ourselves? Let me show you two extremes of this position. So the first one is source 13 on page 6, and the context of this is 1922. And this was at a time when uh, violence between Zionist Jews and Arabs in um, British Palestine um, were um, beginning to heat up. And there had been an act of violence by, um, by a group of Arabs against Jews. And there were some Jews who retaliated and there was a rumor that they had killed a young Arab man, a boy. I don't know how old he was, so I, I, I don't know if anyone knew. And this wasn't verified, but it was a rumor that could have been. So here, here is Achad Ha'am, one of the great, great Zionist leaders, um, the founder of what became known as cultural or spiritual Zionism. He was born in Odessa. He came to Palestine. Um, and here's what he said. I, I'm reading again in the bold. For what did we rescue from the, upheaval of, up, from the upheaval of the destruction if not the teaching of our prophets that we took with us on the long road of exile to lighten what darkened our lives in its foreign lands? That people, I'm just skipping here to the bold, the Jews everywhere pursued with all of external lowliness knew deep in its heart that it did not have and never would have any connection to a life like that because it held in its hands the great moral truth that it is destined to spread to every land, which is to put an end to cruelty and to murder in the whole world. And he, rec he continues, um, just, just to look at the very last sentence of that source, should we come to Zion and contaminate its land by spilling innocent blood? So Achada'am was saying, the only, the great lesson of all of these years of exile is that as Jews we have a higher moral calling that we should recognize and hold on to even when we are now in a position of power. So as we're being persecuted and oppressed and our blood is being shed wherever we've lived, we have recognized this truth of the biblical prophets about justice and righteousness. Now we're in a position of power, what we should do is bring that back to our own situation. Of course, in 1922, the Jews were not in a particular position of power in Palestine yet. Um, they, um, they, they, um, they were just at the beginning of the period of the British mandate. There was no established Jewish army yet and so on. Um, but, but nonetheless, he thinks if the Zionist movement goes forward, it has to resist um, violence of any kind, bloodshed of any kind. And if Zionism is only, uh, if, if Zionism is only possible through the shedding of the blood of other people, then it's not worth it. Then we're doing something wrong. We should do it differently. That's a khata'am. If Zionism is only possible with bloodshed, even in self-defense, then something, something's wrong here. An exact opposite position is that of Uri Tzvi Greenberg. Uri Tzvi Greenberg, writing about the same time as Achad Am, was one of the great poets of uh, Zionism. Uh, he came from um, Poland. He, uh, he witnessed all kinds of anti-Semitic violence, um, murderous violence in his youth. He came to Palestine as a committed Zionist and was one of the founders of a group called Brit Hamburionim, which means literally um, like the covenant of hooligans or the covenant of strongmen or of thugs or some word like that. It was a fascist Zionist organization. 
I'm not giving it that name. That's the name that they, they gave to themselves. They model themselves in part on Mussolini's fascism. They wanted an uncompromising um, protection of Jews in a fully strong Jewish state. Some of the group thought that a dictatorship may be the best way of bringing this about. Um, um, this was a, I should emphasize, a very small minority of Zionists at the time. This was not a major position. And in the end, Ben-Gurion and, and, and other Zionists basically completely put a stop to, to this whole thing. Um, but nonetheless, Uritzvi Greenberg was celebrated as a great Zionist poet. And, and here is his, and here is one of his poems. Your rabbis taught, land is bought with money. You buy a field and you dig it with a hoe. I say land is not bought with money. With a hoe, you also dig and bury the dead. I say land is conquered with blood. And only when conquered with blood is it hallowed to the people by the holiness of blood. This is pretty sickening. Uh, it's also not uncommon in the poetry of the day. This is in the aftermath of World War I, when many poets, artists, and philosophers had some kind of ideology that, in a way, tried to explain or not necessarily justify, but make sense of the tremendous slaughter of World War I by talking about the kind of purging power of the spilling of blood on such a massive scale. Again, this is not an ideology I find attractive in any way, but it was not uncommon at the time. And his position, exactly contrary to Achad Ha'am, is, wake up, Achad Ha'am. You think we can just be here and say, hey, everybody, we're your friends. We're Zionists, so just, uh, just uh, let's all live together peacefully. We're only going to be able to be secure here if the land is soaked with blood. And we have to be prepared to commit violence for that reason. That was his position. And the position of some others as well. These were the extremes, Ahad Ha'am and Oritzvi Greenberg on, on these two ends of the extreme. I'm going to finish with what I hope you'll consider to be a somewhat more attractive uh, middle position. I hope uh, more, in the, more in, the, um, in the vein of Andrea Dworkin that we read before. Um, not a glorification of violence, a celebration of violence, a tremendous hesitation about using violence, but also some kind of realistic understanding of the world around them. And this is Beryl Katzenelson, who was one of the uh, leaders of labor Zionism. He was one of the founders of the Yishuv, um, a founder of the Histadrut, very important uh, Jewish labor, Zionist labor union in, in Palestine and, and later in Israel. And this is Katzenelson. We are a people with a great culture whose basis is a regard for human life. And I doubt that having achieved such respect and appreciation for human life after 2,000 years of education, we ought to give them up. Deep down, we are afraid of blood. This profound trait that has been preserved in us is among the obstacles standing in our way. But if we want to get rid of this trait, we shall not be readily able to do so. And I also believe that if we do, we shall regret it later. We stand up to those who attack us, but we do not want our weapons to be stained with innocent blood, damnaki. If inst um, and then he goes on to talk about self-restraint, in Hebrew, havlaga, which became one of the founding principles of the code of ethics of the IDF, self-restraint. Self-restraint is a political and a moral approach stemming from our history and from our present reality, from our character and the conditions of the war in which we are engaged. If instead of being true to ourselves, we were to take a different approach, we would have long since lost that battle. So a realism about the necessity of self-defense, 
but an, ex an extreme hesitation to use force and violence to achieve um, Zionist goals at the same time. Now, just to wrap up, and then uh, we'll have time for questions and, and, and a bit of a discussion. Um, today, if you look around the Jewish community and you listen to the conversations that are going on in the Jewish community, um, I think you hear echoes of all of these positions. And I think, maybe it's just me, but I think, unfortunately, increasingly, the echoes of these conversations one hears today tend to be echoes from the extremes. Zionism is um, promoting the occupation of the Palestinians. It's, it's oppressing the Palestinians and it's stealing their land. Um, Jews are perfectly safe in the United States and in other countries, um, and we should oppose the excesses of the Zionist state, or at least be embarrassed about Zionism, or we can be strong Jews without necessarily being Zionist, and so on. Zionism is the only thing that's keeping the Jews safe. You think you're safe in America, you're not. Look at Pittsburgh, look at all these other attacks that have happened recently. America's no different from anywhere else. Jews have to stick together. The only thing that matters is the Jewish people and Israel, and if that means committing violence against other groups and peoples, then so be it. We've been trodden on throughout history, and we have to stand up for ourselves. And, and these positions, I think, which are, of course, extremes, and I'm, I mean, I'm, they are... I am caricaturing them to some degree, but I'm, I'm sure we've heard these kinds of positions all, all, all very frequently. Um, these positions each come from um, deep and honest aspirations for a good thing. They come from deep and honest aspirations for a world in which difference is not marked out, in which people can love each other and care about each other without having to stand on artificial boundaries and, and, and use armies just um, to, 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 to guard land. And, and this position is based on a real and honest assessment of the fact that Jews have historically been vulnerable in all kinds of places. And if Jews had kind of seen the future more and stood up for themselves more and been uncompromising more, sure, maybe there are some moral compromises that need to be made, but we, need to, we could have saved a lot of lives thereby. And what I'm trying to say, and what I've tried to show you with these sources, is that although the aspirations, the goals, the hopes, and the fears that motivate, that mobilize these two extreme positions are understandable, human even. Nonetheless, the excesses of them can lead to places that we don't want to go. They can lead to a terrible naivety, which can in itself be dangerous, and at the very least can lead to a loss of a sense of identity and belonging. And they can also lead to um, a kind of parochial extremism that is um, morally deficient, to say the very least. What we have to do is to recognize the fundamental goals and values of these two extremes, but try and figure out a path that is as best as we can, given case-by-case -case basis, where we happen to be at the time, what's going on in the world at the time, to try and come up with a solution that is both realistic and moral, both embraces our own identities and, and, and values within our community, and also um, recognizes our um, place in the community of human beings. And how to do that is a major challenge, but it requires listening, it requires empathy, and it requires genuine honesty. Um, and uh, exactly how to go about doing that will probably have to be uh, a discussion for another day. But I do hope that you um, at least would consider agreeing with me that um, some kind of moderate middle path here, as tortuous and as agonizing, as complicated as it may be, I think is the best 
way to go. So I'm going to leave that there and, and ask for your questions or comments or thoughts. Alex, thank you so much for fabulous learner teaching. Do you like a question at a time, or do you like to get a bundle of questions? Um, I think, so look, it's, it's, uh, we've got maybe 20, 25 minutes, so maybe we'll take a couple at a, couple at a time. Okay, we'll take uh, a few questions at a time, and then give it. So, Michael? Uh, thank you very much. Th th there's one approach to this that I really didn't see articulated too much, except may maybe in the Brandeis quote. By the way, when he made that quote, he was, it wasn't on the Supreme Court yet. He was still a lawyer practicing here in Boston. That's true. Um, but, and the idea is that you can't be a good universalist unless you're a particularist. So it's not a question of some sort of middle ground. It's a question of saying that, because we see people who are pure universalists often are not so nice. And uh, you really have to sort of love yourself and love your people in order to then love everybody else. And I was just surprised we didn't see more quotes because there are people who have made that, that statement. Mm -hmm. Mickey? Um, and as you were going through the, some of the various quotes, I, I was wondering how much of the disagreement was actually just semantics over what people meant by Zionism. Uh, the core of Zionism would be that Jews have a right to self-determination in Israel, uh, but an, an other version one could imagine is not only that, but also that all Jews must be loyal uh, to the Zionist entity, as uh, some refer to it. And, and specifically, I wonder to what degree we should be using analogy to the only other country that I know of that has, uh, besides Israel, that has a museum of di the diaspora, which is Ireland, uh, that Irish people here have uh, strong feelings for Ireland, but nobody goes around accusing Irish people of dual loyalty. Audrey, third question, and then we'll, uh, we'll let Alex respond. Um, I just would like your comment when you're talking about this balance of aspiration and fear, that that's um, characteristic not just of this issue, but of a whole host of issues that people are, are grappling with today. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not that unique. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, absolutely. I, I'm just going backwards, I guess. Uh, of course, um, this model of understanding the hopes, aspirations, but also um, fears and hesitancies behind positions is, is certainly not limited to this and, and can be applied to all kinds of political debates and, 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 uh, and probably should be. Um, empathy. Some people think that empathy is out of place in political conversations because it can weaken your position. <laughs> but actually, I, I find that understanding where people are coming from is just a necessary, necessary thing to do for productive conversations. Um, um, and yes, of course, uh, of course, um, the, the position that you outlined, that universalism is not possible without particularism, okay, um, is actually a well-founded position, both in the Jewish tradition, and, um, and you, you're right, we saw that in, in Brandeis as well, who also made uh, allusions to the relationship, to, to an analogy between Zionism and, and Irish nationalism among Americans. Um, and it's also a well-founded position just in political theory um, generally. So there was a school of uh, political philosophers um, led by Michael Sandel, Michael Walsh, and others in, in the late 80s and 90s called communitarianism, which made the case that basically um, it's not even a matter of choice that we should choose to be particularist first and then look to universalism, but that we are, we are particularists. We're not, we don't come into the world as some kind of free-floating sort of human... Uh, 
a unit that then decides, like, you know, what, which family should I join? You know, you, you, you come into the world already with parents. You come into the world as a member of a community. You come into the world often as part of a nation with a religious background or whatever it is. I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, anyway, so yes, that, there's a lot more to be said about that, but, but absolutely, that is, that is a well-founded position and, and um, uh, the fact that I didn't spend a, a great deal of time talking about it does not mean it's very well represented in the sources like many other things that didn't make its way, way in here. Um, as far as semantics, so um, especially, um, you know, 100 years ago when Akhada Am was writing, there was tremendous debate actually around um, what Zionism meant, and I think this is what you were, what you were alluding to. Um, today, um, people seem more sure about what Zionism means, but even today, I'm not sure that that, that, that certainty is, is well-placed. So when Akhad Am was writing, for example, there were some people who argued that the goal of Zionism should be that all Jews, or as many Jews as possible, should go and live in Palestine and set up a, a state there. Akhad Am did not think that. Akhad Am thought that Palestine, as a Zionist homeland, could be a really important, kind of vibrant cultural center for Jewry that was spread all over the world. Um, other people, um, Shimon Ravidovich, for example, um, who um, believed that, that, that Jewish life should be made of kind of two poles, a Zionist center, but also a diaspora center, not a diaspora periphery, but a diaspora center in these two centers that are kind of um, um, working off one against the other. So you're absolutely right that Zionism, to be a Zionist has not always meant like undying loyalty to the state of Israel uh, or, to, or to the Zionist movement even. Um, it, it was often spliced with different kinds of, of ideologies. Um, in fact, and just to reemphasize the point that, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, um, that Michael just made earlier, you know, um, many, you know, we're familiar today with the, uh, the United Nations um, 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 Convention on Human Rights, okay? Um, and around the same time that the Convention on Human Rights was ratified was all kinds of legislation around um, genocide prevention and so on. So this was made, uh, this was pioneered, not exclusively, not exclusively, but by many uh, Jews who were these Jews who cared about this kind of universal human community people like Lauterpacht and, uh, and others. Many of the Jews who promoted these kind of universal human rights ideas were also Zionists. In other words, what they cared about was the protection of human beings. And what, how do you do that? Let's make sure that there are universal human rights, but when there are national groups, especially groups that are oppressed, let's grant them rights as nations as well. So these two things always, always do go hand in hand. Yeah. We'll take... Uh three last questions and then wrap, wrap up. So, uh, hi. I wonder why these arguments about parochialism and, community and uh, universalism have come to the fore now. And what do you think about the fact that Jews, Israel particularly, has been so successful and uh, the success of the 1967 war and why that role that it's played in this whole argument? Hi, Kempler. Uh, Steve Bookwinder, your hand is up. Again, I, I really, as we all do, appreciate the, the, the talk, essentially. But we have heard about this paradox of universalism versus, versus self-preservation for actually several years. Um, it seems like 
being a moderate in the, in the middle is something in the eyes of a beholder. <laughs> um, I consider myself a moderate, but somebody may not. Mm -hmm. I don't want to leave you off the hook. Mm -hmm. You said at the end that what we need is an honest and moral dialogue. Mm -hmm. Tell us how to do it. Mm -hmm. okay. Because we live in an age of paradox, and now we've got to go beyond the paradox. Okay. Our last question from Alan Spoon. I want to bring this back to uh, domestic affairs because there's a framework here that's very useful. Um, and I'm wondering about the framework that uh, Trump is receiving on America First and Build a Wall. So I turn to Stephen Miller's labeling of, of folks as being cosmopolitan. And I'm wondering, and I'm assuming, actually I shouldn't, um, he could either be derisively dismissing politically the coastal cities or his advice could be based on a thoughtful view of the vulnerability of universalism. You can speculate on that, I don't know, but I'm wondering what you think and whether there is anywhere in the administration uh, a reasoned and rooted view of the risks of nationalism. Well, there's anywhere in the, in the administration that is And you have about five minutes for that. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I'm not going to talk about the administration in detail. Um, I mean, I have thoughts about it, but it's not my area of expertise, and you have as much, you know, your opinion is worth every bit as much as mine on that one. For that matter, your opinion about any of this is, is worth as much as mine. Um, um, and I'm not going to talk about Stephen Miller in particular. I will say um, that... Not always, not always, but some of the time, the word cosmopolitanism is a code word um, for a global Jewish conspiracy. Um, I'm, I, I, I'm not making any claim about his comment then. I don't remember exactly the context of it, um, so I'm not saying anything about that in particular. Um, and sometimes people talk about cosmopolitanism in a perfectly reasonable way, but sometimes it does have that that overtone, um, which I, for one, am, am, am somewhat sensitive with, sensitive to. Um, why now? Well, um, a lot of people, are, lots of people are asking that question. What is it about today that is leading to the resurgence of this kind of hyper-nationalism, national extremism, often racist nationalism, not just in the United States, but, but in many countries all over the world, including to some degree in Israel? And we've seen some of that rhetoric in the recent election. Um, uh, and, uh, and there are many answers to that question. Um, one answer to that question that has been posed is actually that, and I'll, I'll say it and you can tell me what you think of it. One answer to that question is that the reason that there's been this resurgence of nationalism is that the pre past few decades, in the past few decades, a more liberal universalist ideology has been on the ascendant, has been more popular in the United States and other places, um, and that um, there is something about that ideology that isn't fully satisfying to a lot of people because it um, avoids often the question of belonging 
or this gets back again to the universalism, particularism thing, that if the root of an ideology is we're all the same and there should be no differences between us, well then, uh, who do I belong to? What should I believe in? Who are my people? Who, is, who are looking out for me? Because as much as we feel connected to all human beings, sort of spiritually, rationally even, I don't know all human beings. I actually don't, I know almost no human beings. I remember the names of a few hundred human beings, and most of them I don't know very well. So if you want a sense of belonging, a kind of very abstract liberalism may not be the solution to it. Now, this is one critique of liberalism, and I wouldn't take it all the way because I think there are versions of liberalism that do take this into account and are working on that as well. Um, but to the extent that that's true, um, some have argued that what's needed in response to this extremist nationalism is not a all nationalism is bad, universalism is the only way kind of ideology, but an ideology of a, of a kind of moral and just liberalism, which still takes into account some kind of sense of belonging on a slightly smaller scale. Um, I'm not sure that I fully throw myself behind that critique, but I, but I find it at least somewhat convincing and certainly an important thing to think about. Whew, okay. Um, okay. So uh, your criticism, which you said very politely and 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 quite and and, and uh, um, with tremendous moderation and sympathy is is a is a is a correct one is a correct one um, I have a luxury in a way in a sense that look I'm a historian so what I could say to you now is look I'm a historian and there's all these things going on in the world so what I've done is I've given you some historical context and I'm showing you the different positions that people have had, and that's my job. I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a politician, I'm not a diplomat, so take this and then use it, and, and you're saying uh, that's, not, that's not good enough, and, um, and that's a reasonable critique. Um, I'm still not gonna give you a full answer to your question, um, but I'll give you what I think are, are, are at least the outlines of the beginnings of how I'm, I'm thinking about these questions. Um, I think that um, when difficult conversations are had between people in, in any communities, but including in the Jewish community, um, especially things where it feels that a lot is at stake, um, the lives of Jewish people could be at stake, of many hundreds, millions of Jewish people could be at stake with what happens next. It's completely possible. Um, the moral standing of our community, the very future of the Jewish people, um, so when these kinds of conversations are had and people have positions that we virulently disagree with, the tendency is to form kind of camps or sects within the wider community. And you know, based on little clues, you know, what car someone's driving, uh, what hat they're wearing, where they live, which synagogue they go to, you kind of probably can sense like, are they in, on your side or not on your side? And then you know you either feel at home and you can like talk to each other about how outrageous the other side is and how right we are, or um, you can like get ready to get your fists together to, to have an argument. Um, and that's the, that's the tendency, I think, in the political culture of America right now. And I'm afraid it's also true of the Jewish community in some ways. Um, 
So how do we go about having kind of constructive conversations that aren't just like, like they've got a point, they've got a point. Um, how do we go about having kind of constructive conversations? So I think one of the ways of doing that is, uh, and I mentioned this a little bit along the way, is to think about empathy. Um, is to think about empathy, which is to say, when you hear a position, or you read about a position, or you're confronted with a position, even one that you deeply, deeply, deeply disagree with, the tendency is to think, not just that the position is wrong, but the person saying it is somehow um, got the wrong values. You know, they don't care enough about such and such, and therefore they come to this wrong conclusion. But what if we just read even the most disgusting positions, there, and there are extremes which I would exclude from this conversation, which I wouldn't entertain, but even positions that we find really difficult, what if we came at them with an assumption just play with an assumption that the person espousing this position is espousing this position because they have a legitimate and real value underlying what they're saying. They're really scared of something. They have a, um, a, a hope for something. Try and identify what that is. Um, if you do, and I've had this experience, it, one often finds that you share that basic assumption. Now, you still disagree with the outcome, but now this has become not a battle between two entirely different moral worldviews, which if one is right, the other one must be despicable, but between two similar moral worldviews, which have different calculuses about how to act on the basis of those hopes and fears. So for example, um, you know, if somebody says, um, you know, I, I don't even want to say these things out loud. I'm, I'm just looking for extreme positions, but I don't even like to verbalize them. But like some like extreme, like, you know, racist version of Zionism, okay? Or some extreme universal vision which has like no place for Zionism whatsoever and it's a, you know, critiques it as a, as a terrible thing. Um, what's behind those things? Um, a fear of Jewish people dying. A fear that Jewish people are murdering others for um, goals that aren't um, self-evidently correct. Those are the fears. Now, you may, you, you may share those, at least in part. Now, you probably have other moral positions that you add on to them, and that's why you come to different positions. But I think that, I, I guess what I'm saying is that listening with maximum empathy and charity um, changes the conversation from a position of moral sectarianism to a genuinely constructive um, strategic discussion about how to achieve goals that we basically all care about, or that many of us care about. Um, it's an attitude um, rather than a position or an, an ideology. Um, and I, and I um, would not blame you if you told me I'm still falling short, um, but that's at least the beginning of how I'm thinking about this. Alex, I just want to thank you. We want to thank you for a superb morning. Thank you. And uh, I just want to respond the following way, what I loved about your talk, uh, which is it's super fraught and hard and controversial and topical and urgent. Yeah. And what did you bring? First of all, you gave us sources. You gave us scholarship in the very best sense. You gave us, you know, we're a conservative synagogue, so the school of positive historical Judaism, like history and text and evolution of ideas are supposed to be and are really important to us. And you gave us the ideas laid out and mapped out. Um, and, and both from a human point of view, from a Jewish point of view, and also the, your answers, especially to Steve at the end, uh, you are a professor, 
you're also a rabbi. It's true. And I took that to be a blessing that may we be thoughtful, may we listen, may we be empathetic, all qualities always needed and especially needed now. So thank you for a perfect Amen. talk and a perfect morning. Thank you.